Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, good evening. How are we all doing tonight? Good stuff. Okay, so a couple things really quick before we jump in. We are going to be starting again in Genesis 38. Um, As I mentioned last week, the hope was to kind of take all of Genesis 38 in one night last week and then to come back into it and go on a tangent or a rabbit trail um, tonight. And so we are going to be doing that. So you can open your Bibles up to chapter 38, be ready to go from there. Have your fingers ready though, because we are going to jump all over Scripture this evening. And so there's going to be some times, it'll be up on the screen, but if you want to flip through and go to each of those spots as well. The purpose, again, will be to take several of the puzzle pieces and hopefully tonight put them together. We are going to try and cover um, some heavy theology, but hopefully not in a too heavy sort of way. If you are already tired, get some toothpicks, put them in your eyelids. You're going to want to stay awake for it, but you know, do what you got to do. I know that the Lord is going to uh, meet us here with this tonight. I'm super excited to get into it. And through the portion of of Scripture tonight, if nothing else, you'll kind of get a little insight into how my mind works, and you may, that might scare you. I don't know. We'll find out. So most of the review of chapter 38, we're going to actually set aside until next time when we dive into 39. We'll kind of recap some of the things that we discussed. Like I said, tonight's going to be slightly different as we're moving away from the verse-by-verse narrative here in Genesis to focus on what I think is a very special, very important piece of theology. We'll use Genesis 38 here as our launching point. But we're going to move through, like I was saying, several different portions of Scripture um, to build the idea of this particular doctrine. Now, we typically don't go on these types of tangents. We try and keep it kind of, you know, but there are times when you come to a significant portion of Scripture that is covering a significant doctrine or theology, and it is worth that detour to kind of branch out and into it and take a look at it. And some of you are like, what is he talking about? I have no idea. I'm going to get to that. Don't worry. I promise. I'm not going to leave you stringing or string you along for too long. But one of the things that we have seen consistently as we are going through this study of Genesis is the idea that much of what God established in the Levitical law with Moses was actually being practiced well before those laws were actually written. And so we would say we almost have an oral tradition of that law before it ever became a written law. The first example of this would be when God himself instituted the blood sacrifice that was necessary for for the covering of sin. Another example would be that 
um, all of the references to birthrights and inheritances. We talked about some of those last week, but all throughout Genesis, once we were introduced to Abraham, we've been talking about birthrights and inheritance. Those are things that are established in the law that are being practiced you know, well before that time. So these ideas are going to further be fleshed out in the law, but they have been and were being practiced generations before that law was established. I'm pointing that out for two reasons. The first one is that this shows us that God's plan has been consistent. This is an important thing for us to remember when we examine the Bible as a whole. We're looking at an integrated design, an integrated message from beginning to end. It is God's plan and His purpose, and there is no point where He realized, oh no, I messed up and I had to do a plan B. This has been the plan, it was the plan, it will be the plan. He's been in control from the very beginning, and we see this through the way that these things develop. Secondly, this shows us that God's plan has been revelatory from the beginning. With each stage of His plan, He has revealed more of that plan. So it has progressed as history has progressed as well. When we look back at the law, we see how many of those practices were in place, establishing a process before they ever became official law. So when we look back at God's grace through the cross, we see how that grace was present under the law as well. We have a unique perspective when we examine the whole of biblical history. We're able to see how God's plan was consistent, and it's because of that consistency throughout the Bible that we know He has remained consistent through church age, or through the church age and through all of human history. We need to remember that God's plan wasn't just at work, but it is still at work. It is unfolding just as He has desired it to be unfolding. So again, we're starting here with Genesis 38. We're going to look at verse um, six and read a, a chunk there. But before I do, let me go ahead and pray, and then we will move into this study. So, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity. We thank you again that we have the opportunity to gather, to open your word, and to glean from it. Father, I pray that you speak to each one of us tonight as we are moving through several different portions of Scripture. I pray, Father, that your clear and concise message comes out, that you speak to each one of us is at the end of the day, the, the purpose of studying the Bible, Father, is to grow closer to you. The purpose of understanding the Scripture, Father, is to deepen our relationship with you. It isn't just about gaining head knowledge, Father, but it's about convicting us in our heart, bringing the Scripture to a place where we live it, we love it, we desire it, because it is how you speak to us. So Father, we, we pray right now that that is what you do, that you speak to us through these portions of Scripture, that you truly reveal yourself to each one of us personally, that your presence is known to us corporately through this time. Father, we lift up to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Genesis 38, verse 6, then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the, that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went to his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. 
So last week, obviously, we discussed the deplorable acts and how wicked Ur must have been in comparison to some of the other uh, people that survived God's wrath. So we're not going to rehash all of those elements tonight. Instead, we're going to focus on this custom that Judah is telling Onan to carry out. And the custom here um, we mentioned last week was called the Leveret marriage. And this is simply the marrying of the husband's brother. So this practice seems foreign to us, but it is or it does have profound biblical implications. So it's important for us not only to understand the reasons behind this custom, but to also understand how it pertains to God's overall plan of redemption. We will see glimpses of redemption throughout the study tonight, but all those small glimpses will hopefully ultimately be pieced together by the Redeemer, by Jesus Christ himself, when he restores all of creation back to right relationship with God the Father. So we're starting here with the idea of leveret marriage. If you go to Deuteronomy 25, this is where it actually is codified into the Levitical law. So Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. What a strange custom, right? Especially like the more you read, the weirder it gets. She's going to take off his shoe. She's going to spit in his face. <clears throat> so naturally, when we look at this, we may tend to simply ask the question, why? What is the purpose of this process? Why is this necessary? But immediately following that question, I think there's usually some relief on our part that this is no longer a custom that we follow. Can you imagine that if this was the process? So, and to my knowledge, there's no culture in the world that still follows the leveret marriage. So this isn't something that is practiced really by anybody. This was not strictly Jewish, um, but it was uh, strictly ancient. And so as we, as we even progress through Jewish history, we see that they do away with this over um, time. And like I said, nobody practices this today to my knowledge. So we do, however, come to a second question if it was necessary under the law, and even as we're seeing here before the law was codified, why isn't it necessary now? Why don't we follow this cultural um, uh, process? Why is this not something that even the Jews continue to follow? 
Verse 6 kind of gives us the basic answer to the question, and ultimately by the end tonight we'll, we'll come back and be able to fully answer that. But verse 6 <clears throat> says, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the law of leveret marriage is focused on land and inheritance. Remember that God had promised Abraham a particular piece of land. After the exodus, the land was distributed among the 12 tribes, but within each tribe, there were several clans or families that were uh, getting that land. So each clan and family was given a certain amount of land, and this was specific to what God had entailed and designed. And so that's why we kind of see what the whole process was, was to simply keep the land within the family, to keep the inheritance within the family. So ultimately it would stay within the same tribe and it would stay within the uh, equation that you know, God has. So through the course of life, land could be bought and sold. It could be lost through death, and there was potential for those families' names and their lines to be completely blotted out of Hebrew history. So the law of leveret marriage was set in place to help redeem the land back to its rightful heir. Israel also has a very interesting 50-year cycle. The 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And this was basically a year of new beginnings. If you look in Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 13, we get kind of the, the framework for the year of Jubilee. It says, in addition, you must count off seven Sabbath years, seven sets of seven years, adding up to 49 years in all. Then on the day of atonement in the 50th year, blow the ram's horn loud and long throughout the land. Set this year apart as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own clan. This 50th year will be a jubilee for you. During this year, you must not plant your fields or store away any of the crops that grow on their own and don't gather the grapes from your unpruned vines. It will be a jubilee year for you, and you must keep it holy. But you may eat whatever the land produces on its own. In the year of jubilee, each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors. So this is a very interesting concept. See, the year of jubilee, all debts were forgiven. All slaves were set free. Any land that had been purchased actually would be given back to the original clan or family, the owners or their ancestors. So to go into debt in year 49 of the cycle wouldn't have been that big of a deal. The following year would have been the year of Jubilee and everything would have been restored. But if you lose your land or you go into debt, say in year one of that 50-year cycle, it could be setting back yourself and your family. So the law of leveret marriage was one of the ways of keeping the land and inheritance within the family. So it was a way to uh, redeem those things. So the man who fulfills the duty of leveret marriage was referred to as the goel. Uh, that, that four-letter word, we actually translate to a whole phrase, the kinsman redeemer. But the goel is kind of the focus of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So marriage was not only or was not the only way that the Goel could redeem some of his kin or some of his family. There are actually four responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. 
The first one we find in Leviticus 25, 48. If they had the financial means, they were to buy a relative out of slavery. So remember that slavery in ancient Israel is much, much different than what we would typically think of, especially when we look at uh, American history. See, men and even sometimes entire families would willingly enter into slavery to work off some sort of a debt. And sometimes slavery was necessary due to foolishness. Maybe you have that brother that just does stupid things and he falls into debt because of gambling or he falls into debt because he breaks something that belongs to somebody else or whatever the case is. And so there would be a way of redeeming him out of that slavery through the kinsman redeemer, the goel. The second thing that the uh, Goel is responsible for was he was the avenger of blood seeking justice on behalf of a murdered family member. We find that in Numbers 35, 19. He was also responsible to redeem the land, as we've mentioned, um, that was for, or forfeited. So again, if the land was given up because of debts, because of uh, bad business transactions or dealings, then this could be redeemed without the marriage component of it. And that's in Leviticus 25, 25. And then also, as we said, he was responsible to marry a childless widow to continue the family line of the brother that is deceased. And that's what we read here in Deuteronomy 25. So there's several different components of what a goel is or what they could uh, be redeeming. But the catch of being the kinsman redeemer was that it was an all that applies sort of responsibility. So it wasn't like a multiple choice question where the guy who is potentially going to be the redeemer could look at all the different options and pick this one or pick that one. We saw that with Onan and it didn't work out well. He didn't want to uh, have the offspring of his brother. He wanted to engage in the, um, the benefits, the things that he wanted for personal gratification without actually redeeming any of those things. So the answer was simply, whatever of those four things applied to your circumstance, you had to meet all four of them. You couldn't just choose one or two or, or you know, the other. So again, Onan wasn't willing to be the kinsman redeemer for Tamar because he did not want to continue his brother's line. And he also didn't want to ensure that his brother's uh, land remained in his brother's family. So remember, for him... If it passed on, he would be the one who would inherit it. So he was only acting foolishly and selfishly, and it cost him his life. So if he would have refused, if he would have said, no, I don't want to redeem Tamar, and he did not engage in the sexual activity that he engaged in with her, if he just refused it, he would have been dishonored, he would have gotten the, the spit in the face and the, the shoe and all that kind of stuff, but he would have still been alive. The problem with Onan was that he did not do that. He said, yes, I will fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. I will marry her, but then he would not give her the offspring to carry on his brother's line. So again, he was just reaping the selfish benefits of that arrangement. He wasn't focused on his brother or Tamar or the land or the inheritance or anything outside of himself. Now, in the book of Ruth, we see the greatest example of the Goel in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And so I'm going to try my best to do a super, super quick outline of the entire book of Ruth. So you guys buckle in. Here we go. We're going to run through it. We're going to pull out a couple very important pieces as we go. 
But during the time of the judges, so after Moses and Joshua, but before a kingly line had been established, there was a famine in the promised land. And a man named Elimelech took his wife Naomi and their two sons from their home in Bethlehem, which was part of Judah, to the land of Moab. In Moab, Elimelech and Naomi find wives for their sons, but then through a series of unfortunate events, Elimelech and his two sons both die. So all three of them die, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law without anything. So Naomi was a widow with no one to care for her, and both of her daughters-in-law found themselves in a similar situation as Tamar back in Genesis 38. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides to stay with her and journey back to the family land in Bethlehem, while the other daughter-in-law, Orpah, stays in Moab. Once back in Bethlehem, Ruth begins gleaning the fields of a man named Boaz, following the customs and laws that were established to care for the poor. Ruth's reputation and work ethic are noticed by Boaz, and he provides an extra measure of grace toward her when he instructs his harvesters to be a little sloppy with their harvest, meaning that they would leave more for her to glean. They would intentionally drop things. They would leave things so she could pick them off, but they were being sloppy and leaving more for Ruth that would, than what would, typic, or would be typical. So when Ruth returns to Naomi, Naomi is super excited about the harvest, but even more excited about the favor that Ruth has found from Boaz. It just so happens that Boaz is a relative. Naomi knows what this could potentially mean, but Ruth, being a Moabitess, she would have no idea. So Ruth gleaned from Boaz's field through the barley and wheat harvests, and then Naomi began to unfold her plan. She told Ruth to get all dolled up, basically taking off her mourning clothes, and those aren't her sleeping garments, those are because she was in mourning, because she was a widow, to take those off, to make herself look pretty, and then go to the threshing floor where a harvest party was going to be taking place. After the men had had their fun, and once they, they were full of food and drink, Ruth was to observe where Boaz was going to lay down to go to sleep. Once he was asleep, Ruth was to go to him, uncover his feet, and lay down at his feet. In essence, she was presenting herself to him. But it is important to note in this that this presenting herself is far, far different than what Tamar did back in Genesis 38. Ruth was being honorable and pure. She was letting her desire be known, but she wasn't necessarily taking matters into her own hands, which is what we saw Tamar do. So Boaz wakes up and is more than a little freaked out because there's a woman at his feet, and she wasn't there when he went to sleep, and then all of a sudden she was. It's late, and at first he didn't know who it was, but in this scene, Ruth basically says to Boaz that I am no longer in mourning, I have made myself available, and I would like you to be my kinsman redeemer. Boaz is honored, and he's willing to take on the role of Goel, but he also reveals a snag in Naomi's plan. There's a closer relative that has first right to the role of Goel. So Boaz is honorable, he provides a gift for Naomi, and he tells Ruth that he will speak with the nearer kinsman. 
And so this, is, as we're reading this story, if hopefully you guys have read through Ruth before and you know where I'm going and, and what we're talking about, but this is where that tension starts to build. As you've gone through the first few chapters and you see the relationship with Ruth and Boaz develop, you want to see them end up together. That's the natural process of the story. So we as the audience see that they are meant to be together, but now it possibly isn't going to happen. If this other kinsman, the one who is closer, wants to redeem everything, then Boaz is simply out of luck. So the following day, Boaz finds this unnamed kinsman. We don't ever learn his name in um, the book of Ruth. And he speaks with him. At first, it seems that the kinsman is willing to fulfill his role as Goel because Boaz only mentions that the redeeming is focused on the land. And at this point, again, our hearts would maybe sink even a little bit lower, looking like Boaz has lost out on his opportunity to redeem Ruth and to marry her. But then Boaz introduces Ruth into the equation, and it turns out that the unnamed kinsman is unable or unwilling to redeem Ruth and the family line of her dead husband. So he backs out, and he says, no, I can't redeem her as well. So that opens up the door for Boaz, and in the presence of the city elders, he is going to, at that time, fulfill the role of of Goel, or kinsman redeemer. So in Ruth chapter 4, verse 9, I'm going to pick up and read a, a handful of verses there. It says, Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have required Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem, and may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Now make a note of verse 12, because we're going to come back to that one, but we just read that story, so you should hopefully start seeing a connection between last week and this week, even, even more so. So it's important for us to remember that while we use terms like story and character, that this was an actual historical event. These are real people that are recorded in the genealogies of the Bible. In examining the book of Ruth, we see some very valuable qualifications of the kinsman redeemer. And this is really, again, the point of rehashing this story. So, everyone's doing all right? You got your, your toothpicks in your eyes? We're good to go? Okay. Now is where it started. That was all just introduction stuff. Now we're diving in. We're getting a little deeper. Like I said, we're not going to hopefully go too deep, but we're here to study the Bible. So let's study the Bible. The kinsman redeemer, there were four things that that person needed to be able to do. First, they had to be a near kinsman. We see this play out with Boaz and with uh, the nearer kinsman. So the, the closest in proximity to the widow or to the person that needs to be redeemed would be the one that has you know, the, the first stake or the first claim in that. So they must be in, excuse me, a near kinsman. They must be able to fulfill the role. 
So they have to have the financial means if they need to, to buy back the land. They need to have the ability. So if he was married, he couldn't necessarily do this. So they had to be able to fulfill the role. They must be willing to fulfill the role. We saw with Onan and we saw with the unnamed kinsman here that they were not willing to fulfill the role. But we saw with Boaz that he was. And then they must be able to carry out all of the responsibilities involved. So again, those four things that we mentioned earlier on, um, they needed to be able to meet and uh, be able to complete any or all of those, whatever the circumstance prevented. So here we see that Boaz met all four qualifications. The unnamed kinsmen did not. They were unworthy of the title of Goal. So this, again, is a very, very Jewish story. It's set in a very Jewish setting, and it was during a spiritually dark time in Jewish history. Remember, this is during the time of the judges, and the single phrase that defined the time of the judges more than any other was, they all did what was right in their own eyes. So this was a spiritually dark time. This was, again, very, very Jewish. So why are we, as a church, this side of the law, outside of Jewish culture, why do we put so much emphasis on this book and this story? Because it's out of this spiritual darkness that came a Redeemer that restored a bride and restored a land. And we come to realize that the idea of kinsman redeemer, in fact, the entire story of Ruth is simply a metaphor for the church. Again, these are literal people and they are literal events, but they serve as a model just as so many other things in scripture do for us to better understand the role of Jesus Christ. And more than just the role of Jesus, but God's plan of redemption. His plan to restore His people and His land back to their rightful position. See, we understand that through the role of kinsman redeemer, a very Jewish process, that the gospel is laid out and that the gospel has always been intended for more than just the Jews. So the model or the types in Ruth, we'll hit, we'll hit just a few of them here. Naomi is a model or a type of Israel. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. We see that in the New Testament when the, the early Israelites are dispersed and they're bringing the message to the Gentile world. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi. So Ruth, as a model of the church, learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi. We learn about God through the Bible, through the word of the Jewish nation. So Ruth, again, is the, the model or the type of the church. She does not replace Naomi. We notice through the entire story that they are there together. Ruth, um, or excuse me, Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. So Boaz, you're going to see in just a minute, is the model or the type of Jesus Christ in this story. And it is through Ruth or through the church that the nation of Israel is learning about Christ and receiving Christ. That's what we see in our own history right now. It's the church, it is us that is spreading the gospel to the unsaved world and to a very you know, Jewish world in a very real sense. So we see 
Naomi is a type for Israel. Ruth is a type for the church. The unnamed kinsman is a type for the law. The law was unable to fulfill the plan of redemption. The law on its own is unable to save. But Boaz we see as the type or a model of Jesus. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to wait for her to make the first move. Remember that she was in her clothes of mourning. She basically was telling everybody that she was off limits, that she was still in a mourning process. She had to change her clothes. She had to go and let him know that she was available. Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsman. So in our model, we see that it is Jesus, not you or I, that confronts the law. And he redeems us out or through the, um, excuse me, outside of the law. What the law could not do, his grace, his blood, his sacrifice did. So what the law could not do, grace did. So there's lots of different elements. Those are just the, the basic four of where we see this model really start to flesh out, where we see, um, again, Naomi as a picture of Israel, Ruth as a picture of the church, Boaz as a picture of Jesus, and their interaction is really establishing what we see in our time and in our history after the cross. So at the end of last week... <clears throat> We talked about the blessing that Jacob prophesied over Judah. Part of that prophecy was that the scepter would not depart from Judah's hand, meaning that the kingly line would come from Judah. Remember, this is back in Genesis 38. But based on the current circumstances at the time of that blessing, it would have been a very strange blessing to give. The only reliability that they would have had that that prophecy would have been fulfilled was the faithfulness of God. Remember, Jacob's sons were in a foreign land at the end of Genesis. We're not there yet. We're going to get to, to that starting next, uh, in the next chapter. But they weren't yet their own nation. And so without the faithfulness of God, Jacob is basically saying words that would have been meaningless. He's telling one of his sons, his fourth oldest son, that he's going to be the kingly line of a nation. The nation doesn't exist. They're in a completely foreign land. They had just gotten through all of the famine and everything and restored their relationship with Joseph. So it's only on the faithfulness of God that they could anticipate those things that he was giving blessings to his, uh, his sons when they died. But there was another problem that would have been known to the elders in Boaz's day. <clears throat> Judah's line was being carried on by a bastard or by an illegitimate son. Remember, Perez and his brother were born out of wedlock. Tamar went into um, Judah. She tricked him into thinking she was a temple prostitute. She got pregnant through that. There was never a marriage that took place there, and they were born out of wedlock. And so they would both be considered bastards. And being a bastard was a pretty big deal. You guys didn't think you were going to hear that word tonight, did you? And he keeps saying bastard from the stage. But being a bastard was a very big deal in this day and age. In Deuteronomy 23, 2, we see that they are actually excluded from entering into the assembly of the Lord. 
It says, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So we have a big problem with the line of Judah because it is being passed on through this illegitimate son and they are basically shunned from the assembly of the Lord. But at the end of Ruth, we see a blessing that almost feels like a face slap. And then we're going to see a genealogy that that will hopefully start to put all the pieces together. So like I said, we're, we're grabbing little different pieces of the puzzle. We're putting them all together as we go through this. So Ruth 4.12, we already read, read it, but I said we'll come back to it. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Now again, everything we know about Tamar and Judah and Perez, that doesn't sound like a blessing. It sounds more like a curse. And you're looking at the end of the story. Ruth and Boaz are married. They're having children. They're carrying on the lines. He's fulfilled all of these things. And then the elders give him this blessing, but it seems more like a slap in the face. Tamar and Judah, we know, weren't very righteous. We know that Perez was illegitimate and that he carried this curse. In Numbers and Chronicles, we learn that not only was he the father of one of the great clans of the tribe of Judah, but he was seemingly also the father of all of the Bethlehemites. So the blessing given to Boaz and to Ruth is a true blessing of prosperity, but it does carry with it this idea of, well, how do we get around his illegitimacy? So here in the genealogy, at the end of Ruth, we see, like I said, all these pieces come together. And when I read things like this and I put these pieces together, I get excited. Hopefully you guys get excited when you see it, if you don't know what we're doing. But this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz. So here we see that this Boaz is actually in the bloodline of Perez. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. And we know David will be the first king. So from Perez to David is ten generations. David was the first of Perez's line from the tribe of Judah that was even eligible to become king. So God's plan was at work this entire time, and it was just simply waiting for that curse to be lifted from the bloodline, and then as soon as it was lifted and David was available, and all of those things, they all click, and God's plan moves forward. So when David became king, he, like I said, completed the curse on Perez. He fulfilled the prophecy regarding the line of Judah. He perpetuated the blessing given to Boaz, and he established the line that would bring forth the Messiah. So that's all good news. That's stuff that we can get excited about. And like I said, when I do this in a, in a study, like up in my office, I actually smile and giggle, and it's kind of sad to look at me, I know, but... But hopefully you guys enjoy your Bible studies as well. We are seeing God's plan here on full display. When we're looking at Scripture, these types of things 
for me, are what confirms the truthfulness of Scripture. For me, this is what takes it from just an ancient book to the active, living Word of God. Because there are so many elements and pieces there that you could not fabricate, you could not fake, you could not put them together. If you read it at surface value, there's enough of that to have faith in the Word of God as well. But when you start digging deep and you start seeing how all of these different pieces are working together, and we're talking about several centuries of history that all snap together as they should, you see the hand behind the Word at work. But we're not done. We're just getting started with this. So the next question then is, why couldn't God just forgive everyone and accept all of humanity into heaven? The simple explanation, again, we could dive into very theological things here, but the simple idea is that God is just, and justice demands atonement for wrongdoing. God himself instituted the shedding of blood as a covering for sin in Genesis 3.21. We know in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then also in Hebrews 9.22, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God's character demands justice be served, but his character also demands grace. So why was it necessary for Jesus to be our kin? In essence, Adam's sin thrust him and all of his bloodline, which is all of humanity, into slavery and bondage of sin. And it also gave Satan the deed to creation because Adam surrendered his responsibility. Remember, God gave Adam dominion over the earth. He squandered that in his sin. So Adam's bloodline and all of creation are in need of being redeemed, but as we have seen, redemption can only come from a kinsman. So sin and death entered through Adam, but righteousness and redemption entered through Jesus. Paul refers to him in Romans 5 as the last Adam, and that's really what Romans 5 is all about, the comparison and the contrast between the first Adam and what he brought into the world and what the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did to redeem not just us, but also all of creation. See, in in Romans 8, we learn that all of creation needs to be redeemed. In Romans 11, we specifically learn that Israel needs to be redeemed to complete the land promise given to Abraham. I've mentioned it before, that at no time in human history has the nation of Israel possessed the entire promised land. There is still an unfulfilled promise there that will be redeemed by Jesus Christ when he is on the throne of David. The redemption of the Goel or the kinsman redeemer started on the cross, but it comes to its final stage in Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to read a few of these verses. This is one of my favorites. If you guys have been with a, a night of prayer any time in the last year, I've probably read it, on, or a week of prayer, I've probably read it at least once in one of those nights. But Revelation 5, we're in the throne room of heaven, and John is writing, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. In this scene, we see Jesus fulfilling his role as redeemer. As he takes the scroll and begins opening up the seals, he is reclaiming creation. He is conquering his enemies. He is claiming victory as he restores mankind to our created purpose in relationship with God. I am tingly when I say all of this. See, what started out as a brief illusion in Genesis 38 comes to its final climax in Revelation 5. It is a string from the first book to the last book. It is the plan of redemption all throughout. I'm going to read a list here, and I'm already getting choked up, but I'm going to try and get through it without sobbing like a little baby. This is who Jesus is. This is why we focus on him. This is why we worship him. He was a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a wise counselor above Solomon, a beloved, rejected, and exalted son like Joseph. The heavens declare his glory, and the firmament shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. He is the first fruits of them who slept. He is the I am that I am, the voice of the burning bush. He is the captain of the Lord's hosts, the conqueror of Jericho. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is imperially powerful, and he is impartially merciful. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our avenger of blood. He is our city of refuge, our performing high priest, our personal prophet, our reigning king. I'm just getting warmed up. He was born of a woman so that we could be born of God. He, was humbled himself, he humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made co-heirs. He suffered rejection that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could free, freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He is available to the tempted and the tried. He blesses the young. He cleanses the lepers. He defends the feeble. He delivers the captives. He discharges the debtors. He forgives the sinners. He franchises the meek. He guards the besieged. He heals the sick. He provides strength to the weak. He regards the old. He regards or rewards the diligent. He serves the unfortunate. He sympathizes and he saves. His offices are manifold. His reign is righteous. His promises are sure. His goodness is limitless. His light is matchless. His grace is sufficient. His love never changes. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, and they learned that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't agree against him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave could not hold him. He has always been and always will be. He had no predecessor and will have no successor. His name is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, this is who Jesus is. I can't take credit for the list. I didn't put it together. But this is who sacrificed himself for the wretched. This is who sacrificed himself for each one of us. You see, when all of this starts to make sense, not here, but here, this is when our lives are transformed. When we take a look at that simple little illusion, what happened between Judah and Tamar, unfolding this whole idea of the need of a kinsman redeemer and seeing it climax in Revelation 5 when he redeems the land and the people and all of creation. That is who we worship and that is why he is worthy of our worship. But it can't just be head knowledge. It has to be knowledge that we hide deeply in our heart and it will transform our lives. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together. Thank you.